Well, good evening. How's everybody tonight? Good, good. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be here. Um, obviously, it's a huge privilege. As you all know, and Pastor Mark just mentioned, Pastor Jim is traveling uh, in the Middle East. So they've been very busy. They've had the tour. I know it's been an awesome trip. I have seen a few people back, so that's good. I know there's more on the way. And they'll be gone still, as Pastor Mark mentioned, uh, another week or so. So keep them in your prayers. Um, I've been on a couple of those filming trips. I've had that opportunity and it's hard. It's hard work. You know, most days we're up five in the morning. And then what a lot of people don't realize is after you film for a day, you have to spend hours and hours backing up all the footage to a computer. So it really is hard work. And the team does a really good job. It's amazing uh, what Pastor Jim's able to accomplish. His schedule is very, very crazy in most people's eyes. You'd think he has like 40 hours in a day. But um, it's funny, he texted me about a month ago and he asked me if I'd be willing to speak uh, tonight. And I thought for sure he had the wrong number. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know what that was about. But uh, like I said, it's, it's an honor to be here. It's a privilege. And at first, I didn't know what to speak on, right? Like, man, that's a big deal. I don't know what to do, right? But it's good, it's good. We got a message tonight. So hopefully you enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed preparing it. For those of you who don't know me, um, little brief history. Pastor Mark mentioned some of it, but my parents grew, uh, my parents have been here at this church for years and years. And so I've grown up here in the schools, uh, Christian school. And then after high school, graduated and went to Day Spring for four years and graduated in 2021. And it's been amazing. As Pastor Mark mentioned, um, I do the radio program for In Grace. So that, that has given me the opportunity to work with Pastor Scudder. And, um, I've learned so much. It's been amazing. Uh, about, Two and a half years ago now, I got married to my amazing wife, so that's always exciting. Um, and honestly, we don't know what the future looks like for us, but we're excited. Uh, we're excited to be where we're at today. We're excited to see what the future holds. So uh, we'll see about that. But before we get started, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we'll ask for God's blessing on the service tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we can come together, we can gather, um, and hopefully learn from your word, Lord. Um, we can worship you. I pray that you'd uh, give me wisdom as I'm speaking. I pray that your message would come out clearly, that um, it could hopefully be a blessing, an encouragement to those that are going to hear it. Lord, again, we ask for your blessing on the rest of the service, and it's your name I pray. Amen. Raise of hands, who has ever heard of the Navy SEALs? I assume that's most people in the room, right? We've all heard of them, elite group of soldiers, U.S. military, right? Um, what about a process called drown proofing? Anybody heard of that? Drown proofing? A few hands, a few hands. So it's a, it's a process that I had heard of, but I didn't know all the details and I'd kind of heard the concept, didn't know that it was named that. But drown proofing is a, a test that SEAL candidates have to complete. And they do this for a purpose. They do this so that they're comfortable in the water. Obviously, Navy SEALs have to be comfortable in the water. And the test is conducted in a nine-foot deep pool. And they have to do the following five tasks. Number one, they have to bob up and down in the deep end for uh, 20 times. Number two, they have to float on their back for five minutes. Number three, they have to swim to the shallow end of the pool, turn around and swim back without touching the bottom. Four, they have to do a forward and a backward somersault. And five, they have to retrieve a mask off the bottom with their teeth. So 
you hear those tasks like, okay, that's, that's pretty crazy, but doesn't seem impossible, right? Seems like maybe doable if you're a really strong swimmer. That could probably be done. Well, plot twist, they have to do this with their hands tied behind their back and their feet tied together. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, wow, that's crazy, right? And they have to pass all of these events in the test or they're considered a failure and they're removed from training. And that's a little bit trickier, right? Now that you got your hands tied up, now you got your feet tied together. And on top of that, if at any time their ropes come undone because they're struggling, they have to start over. And if they fa- if their ropes come undone a second time, it's a failure. Then they're removed from SEAL training. So I was researching this a little bit because I had thought about this idea that we're going to talk about tonight. And um, I read this article about it. And this article stated this. And I thought, wow, that's good. That's kind of exactly what I wanted to touch on tonight. So I'm going to read the sentence to you. They said, it is an extremely difficult test, obviously, as it will force a candidate to either relax in the water or fail. Did you catch that? It forces the candidate to relax. It forces them not to struggle, but to be still. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today, this idea of not struggling. Because in this test, if your ropes come undone, too bad, so sad, right? It's a failure. In order to pass the test, you can't be struggling against these ropes. And you kind of have to force yourself to become helpless. And we're going to look at that in a second. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 46, verse 10, we'll read that in a minute. But the idea that we're going to talk about tonight is that sometimes in life, God is giving us things. Maybe it's something that seems like an obstacle. Maybe it's a, a, a distraction. And we're going to talk about that. It could be, it could be any number of things, but sometimes God gives us these things and he's giving us the task because it's for his purpose. And it might seem like our hands are tied together and our feet are tied together, but he's doing this usually to teach us something. And we're going to look at four examples tonight of people and passages where people were used, people learned things because God, in a moment that seems from a human perspective, like a struggle, God used that for a good reason. And I think our natural response oftentimes is just to fight it, right? We want to fight it, right? But if the ropes come undone, failure. All right. So Psalm 46, 10 says, be still and know that I am God. We'll stop there. I'm sure that's a verse that we're all pretty familiar with. We've heard that verse before, but those words, be still, it has this idea of um, ceasing. It has the idea of becoming helpless. And that's what the seals have to do in that test. Their hands and their feet are helpless in the task. They can't help because if they struggle too much, failure, right? And sometimes in life, we have to do that with God. We have to become helpless because he's in control. In life, there's always going to be things we can't control. There's always going to be things that maybe God wants us to do that we don't want to do. There's things that might seem like obstacles or problems, but he's in control. Personally, I always wonder, like, why, why do we face these things, right? Why do we face these struggles? Because it just doesn't make sense in our eyes sometimes, right? I, I ask myself, you know, like, why, why are we going through this? Or why am I faced with this temptation? Or maybe, um, maybe you think the same thing. Maybe you wonder, like me, why can't God just give me the end of, of my story, right? Why can't he just tell me what's going to happen in the future? But 
God is God and we're not. And these are real things. They're real thoughts and emotions. But the answer, and we're going to see this today, is to be still and trust God. Because when we do, we're going to grow. We're going to learn things. We're going to gain a deeper faith. God grows us the most in times of solitude, obscurity, and silence. And those three words are where the title tonight came from, SOS, solitude, obscurity, and silence. Having said that, um, I, I first want to say this, this idea of pursuing God's will, when you do that, your struggles are guaranteed to come, right? And we've seen that in scripture. We see that all over the place. People that are pursuing the will of God that are facing insurmountable tasks. But having said that, I hope that we can be people in a church that says, bring it on, bring it on. I want to do the task anyway, even if it seems like my hands are tied, my feet are tied up. Because ultimately I'm going to grow. God's going to teach me things and he's going to get the glory in the end. So the first of our four struggles, point number one, the struggle against God. Even just saying that out loud or or writing that in my notes, I thought, well, that's kind of silly, right? Like, why would we ever struggle against God? I kind of chuckled because we're humans, right? God is our creator. Why would we even, why would we even think of doing, doing that? Why would we oppose God? But we all do it. We all do it. But the, the reality is God is, again, trying to teach us things. And it's, it's for a purpose. Personally, when I think of someone in scripture who struggled against God, the obvious one for me that comes to mind is Jacob. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, literally wrestled with God all night long. And this wrestling match was a turning point in Jacob's life. It was a time in his life when God taught him something. And we're going to read that in Genesis chapter 32. Let's read the account and let's remember that it's important that really when anyone is is trying to teach us something, but especially when God is trying to teach us something, it's important that we listen. Don't struggle against it. Don't fight it. Genesis 32, starting in verse 24, we'll read. And Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him. I believe that man is God until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he, that's God, touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, God said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he, Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And God said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and has prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So the name Jacob, which I didn't know this, but the name Jacob literally means supplanter, deceiver, right? And we see that throughout Jacob's life. There's kind of a theme. He, uh, he conned his brother uh, out of the birthright, right? We know that story with Esau. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing Not just that, that was a blessing that God had already promised would go to Jacob, but Jacob took matters into his own hands and got it anyway through deception. So we see that throughout his life. Sometimes God in life, it it seems like he's tying us up, but that's a human perspective. 
Maybe he doesn't want us to undo the ropes. Maybe he doesn't want us to struggle. He wants us to swim and do the task with the ropes on because he's trying to teach us. God was teaching Jacob in this moment to let go of deception. And we see that his name was changed to Israel. Jacob got it. In this moment, Jacob got it. It clicked for him. He learned the lesson God was trying to teach him. And in that wrestling match, Jacob was defeated. But in the end, he won because he learned. He learned the lesson. He grew from it. And sometimes that's how it is in life. Sometimes we win with God when we're defeated because God doesn't want us to struggle. He wants us to get close to him. He wants us to be still. He's trying maybe to drown proof us. So that's our first struggle of the night. Struggle against God is number one. Number two is the struggle against uncertainty. For me, uncertainty, um, the, the first thing that I think of is 2020, right? And that might come to a lot of people's minds. There were so many uh, new things that we didn't know the answers to, right? A lot of uncertainty. And for, for me and my wife in particular, we were getting married in June of 2020. So that was kind of a crazy time. Try planning a wedding when you don't even know if you can gather with 10 people, right, in a room. Um, it, was a, it was a crazy time. So everything was shut down. Um, we didn't know what to do. Pretty much in March, we stopped planning our wedding because it was like, well, what do we do? We don't know what to do. We don't know what to book. We don't know what to do, right? Um, we ended up about two weeks ahead of time moving our whole venue and all, all of our planning. We moved everything to Wisconsin because Wisconsin had dropped all the mandates um, and it opened up and that was crazy, but uh, well worth it. It was an amazing day. And I feel like God was teaching us in that time. There was a lot of situations that had happened in there. Um, we couldn't get a marriage license because Wisconsin was saying that it was, uh, it was backed up. So they didn't have the staff to run it. So we had to do that within 72 hours of wedding day. So we had to cram that at the last second. Um, our wedding night hotel was in Milwaukee and George Floyd riots broke out all over and we had to cancel that. So there were so many things that was like, wow, what do we do? Right? So much uncertainty. And it's interesting because if you look at characters in the Bible, great heroes of the faith, oftentimes they spent years in solitude and obscurity and silence, not knowing the future. Years and years having uncertainty ahead, but they embraced it and they learned from it. Um, you think of Moses, right? Moses grew up in Egypt, um, ends up being an incredible man, right? Doing amazing things, but he spends a period of time after he flees Egypt of 40 years where there's some uncertainty in his life, right? It wasn't until he was 80 years old that he ends up leading the Israelites out uh, of Egypt. So 80 years of, of uncertainty where God was growing him and teaching him things. Um, you think of David, right? David was anointed king as a teenager. He, uh, he slayed Goliath. He could have taken the throne, right? But he believed not to uh, raise his hand against God's anointed. I mean, David, again, another incredible man. He had uh, an army of his own, hundreds of men who were loyal to him, not to the king. But he didn't assume the throne until 13 years was spent on the run as a fugitive from Saul. He was dodging spears and hiding out in caves. 13 years of uncertainty in David's life. What about Joseph? Joseph, another amazing man of faith. Joseph's in the hall of faith, right? 
sold into slavery by his brothers, ends up in Egypt. He's in uh, Potiphar's house, right? Um, then he's falsely accused. A lot of things happen. He ends up in prison. It's, it's uh, 13 years for him too. He was 17 at the time that he was sold into slavery. And he was 30 when he became the, uh, the vice president of Egypt, if you will, the, uh, the second in command to Pharaoh. And that's an amazing story. But I think it was in that time that Joseph spent in uncertainty, in solitude, in silence, that he learned, he grew and he learned the trust to continue in life. He learned to trust God in an amazing way. And I could go on. There's more. Um, Elijah, Esther, Noah, Joshua and Caleb, all of these people, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they're amazing people of the faith that spent many, many years in uncertainty. So the point is, a lot of people deal with this, right? But God can use us. And the people that are great are the ones that learn from these situations, this time of uncertainty. There's one man in particular that I want to look at uh, today, and that is Saul of Tarsus. We're going to look a little deeper into some uncertainty in Saul's life. We all know Saul of Tarsus later uh, uh, goes on to be Paul, the apostle Paul, possibly the greatest Christian to ever live. You could make an argument for that. He wrote 13 or 14 books of the New Testament out of 27. Like when I hear the apostle Paul, it's like, wow, what an amazing man, right? Well, look at all the things that he did for God. But what a lot of people don't think about and something I didn't fully realize is the time in his life that he spent in solitude and obscurity and silence. Times of uncertainty, long periods of time. But in, in those times, he was growing. He was walking with God. He was being still. So to set the scene a little bit before we read the passage, um, Saul of Tarsus, he's on the road to Damascus and he ends up encountering God. And he's converted, but he's blind, right? He, he ends up in Damascus and he's healed from his blindness. And uh, it's, it's a miraculous conversion story. Definitely read that if you get a chance. And you'd think after this happens, like, wow, he's seen God. His life has changed forever, right? And it is, it is. But what's he going to do now? What does the future look like for him? Well, first of all, he gets on fire. He goes out pretty much right away and starts preaching. Someone said this, God miraculously changed Saul, the Christian killer, into Paul, a passionate preacher. That's so amazing, right? The conversion that happened. But we need to realize something because Paul had a lot more to learn. God had a lot more to teach Paul. And this was just the beginning. There's this period of time that Paul spends where you don't really expect. He doesn't, he doesn't go out on missionary journeys right away. He doesn't start writing the New Testament. He's not leading believers. You know, he's not leading a church. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do these things that you might expect him to do. He ends up going to a place where, from a human perspective, you, you would say, how could anything good come out of that? And the place was called Arabia. Let's read it in Galatians 1, verse 17 and 18. It says, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. Chuck Swindle writes in his book, Paul, a man of grace and grit. He says, make no mistake. Arabia was a barren wilderness 
For the most part, it was a, it was deserted, except for a few Bedouins. So this place called Arabia, it's, it's a wasteland, right? You think nothing good can come out of that. But Paul later tells us that it was in this time of solitude and obscurity and silence that God taught him things. He was learning who God was. So you think, all right, he learned, he learned everything. Uh, he's going to go out and begin his ministry, right? Wrong. He ends up going back to Damascus where he again preaches boldly. But again, it's ended after just a matter of days. Acts 9 tells us that. And then the Jews end up wanting to kill him. And so he flees for his life. He flees to Jerusalem for his life. And I listed the verses there in Acts 9. We're not going to read them, but um, definitely read those later. And then I also listed a brief timeline. So you can kind of get an idea of, of the events that happened in Paul's life. Paul spent 15 days then uh, in Jerusalem preaching boldly. He was preaching to the Greeks, uh, uh, preaching to all of Jerusalem, but the Greeks ended up then wanting to kill him too. So then he again flees for his life after just a matter of days again, and he spends the next nine years or so in Tarsus without officially beginning his ministry. And again, God is using this time this time of solitude and silence. God's using this to teach him. Paul actually writes about this. He, he writes about how God was shaping his doctrine, how God was using things in his life to humble him, right? And he learned all these things. And so Paul had an amazing ministry after all this time, right? Uh, missionary journeys, right? Churches that he started and most of the New Testament written by Paul. But he had this period of, 12 to 14 years where he spent in uncertainty, not necessarily knowing what the future was. And I know that that uncertainty can be scary. And I know it's genuine. I mean, sometimes I wonder like, okay, where am I going to be in five, 10, 15 years? Because five years ago, I would never have guessed I'd be where I am. Like Pastor Mark mentioned in Grace Radio, I would never have guessed that's where I'd be. It was something I knew nothing about, um, but it's been amazing, right? And I've learned so much. So I know that unknown can be scary, but Paul embraced that time of unknown and he learned from it. And God uses him in an incredible way. Took took patience, right? And it took him growing closer to God, walking in the spirit, not the flesh. And that brings us to our third struggle today. And that's the struggle against self. So we had the struggle against God, number one. Number two, the struggle against uncertainty. Three, the struggle against self or the flesh. Arguably, this is the biggest struggle that, that we're going to face when we pursue God's will is, is our own flesh, our own old nature, right? Paul actually writes about this um, in Romans 7. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it's so relatable. You read this and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's me, right? That's me. So let's read it in Romans 7, uh, starting in verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would not, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil of which I would not, that I do. 
Now, if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So that's a lot of words, right? But if you, if you take a minute and understand it, Paul is describing this battle going on inside of him. And he presents this idea that there's another person inside of him that hates everything he loves. And there's another person inside of him that loves everything he hates. And that's the battle of the two natures I think we're all familiar with. And sometimes when you're in that battle, it feels like your hands are tied behind your back. It feels like your feet are tied together. But God is often teaching us, even though it might seem miserable. I mean, even Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. It can be miserable, miserable, but we can overcome it. We can overcome it. And that's a promise from God. Galatians 5, 16 says, this I say, then walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Feeding the spirit, walking in the spirit. It's all about getting close to God. Again, it's, it's about being still even in those times of obscurity, even in the time when it feels like it's impossible. Someone said this, as the moon reflects the light of the sun, yet has no light of its own, so we will shine with God's radiance as we live in proximity to his son. That's a great quote. And that's what it's all about, being still, because we're gonna reflect the light of God. We're gonna learn what he wants us to learn. And we're going to grow. And our fourth and our final struggle today is the struggle against distractions. I don't know how long ago this was, uh, maybe a year or so. My wife and I were watching a movie and I don't know what the movie was, but it was set like way back in the, in the 1930s or 40s, right? You know, that era, you can, you see it, you recognize it right away. And we were watching this and she just looks at me and she goes, man, wouldn't you want to live in that time? It just seems so simple. And I thought, well, the Great Depression wasn't so great. Uh, World War II wasn't so hot either. But other than that, not, not so bad, right? But she had a point. It was simple. It was a simple time. And of course, they had complications that we don't have today. But there weren't um, what I like to call a distraction boxes in that time, right? Um, there were a lot of things that were simpler in that time. She's right. And today, our lives are filled by so many things that steal our time. And uh, Pastor Mark Moore actually preached about this. And I was thinking while he's preaching, okay, he better stop. He's kind of stealing my thunder here. So we'll see. No, no, it's good. But our lives are filled by these things. To me, the obvious things are um, music, TV, movies, social media, sports, maybe. Think about this. A hundred years ago, the microphone and the record player were barely invented. 150 years ago, which isn't that long in, in terms of history, if you wanted to hear music 150 years ago, you had to go somewhere where someone was playing it live to listen. Now, it's right here, right? It's on this little distraction box. $3.99 a month, you get Spotify or Apple Music, right? Unlimited, as much as you want. It's crazy, crazy how easy that is, 
how easily it can steal our time. And I'm a big music fan. I love music, but it can easily steal our time if we're not careful. What about movies and TV? Um, that pretty much got widespread only in the 50s. So now we're talking like 70, 75 years ago. That's not that long ago. I mean, I can remember in my lifetime, and I'm not very old, a time when if you wanted to go watch a movie or something, you had, at the very, very least, you had to go to the living room and turn on the TV. Now, it's right here. It's so easy, right? $9.99 a month, Amazon Prime, right? You get all the, all the movies, all the TV you want. These stupid little distraction boxes steal our time. What about social media? Facebook started in 2004, so now we're definitely talking in my lifetime. That's only, what, 18 years ago? Instagram started in 2010. Look where we're at today with that. Global Web Index published an article last month that showed that globally 59% of the world's population uses social media. That doesn't really surprise me. What surprised me was the, the average daily usage is two hours and 31 minutes. That's a lot of distraction time. That's a lot of time that is stolen away from fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. Sports, about sports. We have March Madness coming up. Any March Madness fans out there? I, I'm not a big uh, sports watcher, so March Madness doesn't get me that excited, but I know it does for a lot of people. Um, an article published by an outplacement firm wrote this. In 2009, U.S. employers stood to lose about 133 billion dollars in productivity during 2019's March Madness tournament. They said 48% of all workers, roughly 75 million people, would spend approximately six hours of work time on March Madness activities throughout the tournament. $13.3 billion that U.S. employers are going to lose this year from people watching sports during work. It's a little distraction, right? And guess where it is? It's right here on these little distraction boxes. That's just a few. That's just a few things that we touched on. What about work? You know, it's easy to spend too much time at work. Or what about worry? I know people that worry all the time and, and they just, they're exhausted by it because worry, again, it's just stealing our effort, our energy. What about relationships or hobbies? What about material things, chasing material things or gaming how about the news? The news, man, that could be a big one, right? You could, could watch the news all the time and it's always depressing. Isn't that right? What about, this is me. This is totally me. I'll be sitting at my desk. I'll be working. Don't tell Pastor Jim because it's on his time. But I'll, I'll be sitting there and this will vibrate, right? And I don't even know what it is. But my first reaction is like, ooh, what's that, right? And you go, you pick it up and you look at it. It's stealing our energy, stealing our time. Hopefully it doesn't go off. That would be bad. I think I silenced it, hopefully. The point is there's so much in today's world that pulls us away from God. There's so many things that are doing the opposite for us of being still. They're stealing our energy. They're stealing our time. I'm going to look at Matthew 26. If you'd turn there with me, Matthew 26. We're going to look at a man who was facing possibly the biggest distraction in the history of distractions. Jesus facing the cross in Matthew 26. And something that he does, we need to do more often. He stops, he takes a moment in solitude, 
a moment in silence. He goes to God. He's still, right? Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And then verse 42, we'll skip down. It says, he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. So I have a little example here, and I'm sure you guys have been wondering, okay, what is that, right? Um, Ivan, can you come up and help me for a minute? Ivan came up to me before the service today and he goes, just so you got, just so you know, Jace, this is the, the last message I'm going to hear in my teenage years. It's his birthday on Saturday. So very exciting. He's turning 20. All right. Come around back here for me. This cup, I want to represent a few things. The cup, I want to represent God's will, right? And inside the cup, it's full of water. And I want the water to represent God's purpose for our lives. Whatever God's asking you to do, whatever it might be, we have to drink it, right? That's our goal is to fulfill God's purpose for our life. So Ivan, go ahead and do me a favor. Drink a little bit of that water. Is it good water? Clean water? Okay. So I don't know if you can see the water level go down, but Ivan was able to drink the water, no problem, because he has direct access to God's will through the straw. Now, what happens if I take another straw and I put it outside the cup. So go ahead and Ivan, grab that and drink out of both of those. Here, you hold that. Now there's one straw that's not in God's will. And this could be, it could be any number of distractions, right? How's that? Can you get any water out of there? Nope. No, it's, it's almost impossible. You can maybe get a little bit, right? But when you add this, this one simple distraction, fulfilling God's purpose becomes so much harder. Thank you, Ivan. Go have a seat. Appreciate it. Give him a hand. So God is asking us to, to drink the cup. Like I said, whatever that might be. Maybe, maybe um, it's, it's God asking you to be faithful where you're at. Maybe it's um, a trial you have to face or a temptation. Maybe it's not getting angry at a coworker, even if they deserve it. Whatever that cup is, God is asking us to drink it. And when we have direct access to God, it doesn't seem too hard. We can drink it. But when we add just one little tiny distraction, it becomes almost impossible. So the point is, don't get distracted. We can learn from the example that Jesus left us when he was facing the cross. He took a moment to be still. We need to do that in our own lives. Take a, take a moment to, to be still and think and, and get alone with God. Spend time in solitude and obscurity and stillness. I want to challenge you, something, challenge you with something as we wrap it up for today. Some people would look at these four scenarios and go, you know, I'm not really down for that solitude thing. I don't like to be alone. I don't like uncertainty, so I'm good, right? But one, I challenge you to look at these examples and find a negative. Because I studied these passages, these stories, there, there isn't one. There really is no negative. These people 
grew from these, from these moments in their life. We look at Jacob. What did he learn? Right? You look at Paul. What did God teach him in those times of uncertainty? Because I see faith. I see deeper living. I see joy and contentment. I see people fulfilling God's purpose. I see grace and humility. I see humans, ordinary people, just like you and me, that overcame incredible things because they learned from these moments of solitude and obscurity and stillness. Because they were still, they listened to their creator, their shepherd. Number two, I challenge you to get alone with God. Spend some time in in quiet. Spend some time in solitude. Don't be afraid of obscurity. Because God is going to use you and teach you through those things. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it feels like we are on the verge of drowning. It feels like our hands are tied behind our back. Our feet are tied together. But God oftentimes is drown-proofing us. He's teaching us things that we need to learn. In order to walk with God, though, first, you need to be saved. So if you're here tonight and you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, listen very closely to what I'm about to say. In John 3, 16, it's up here on the wall as well. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved you and me so much that he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. He lived a life we couldn't live because we all have sin and that keeps us out of heaven. But Christ came, he, he lived a life we couldn't live. He paid a sin debt we couldn't pay on the cross. And if you believe that message, that simple message, you too can be saved. You can put your faith in Christ knowing that your debt is paid. He's paid for your sins, past, present, future. And then once you've done that, you can begin to walk with God. You can be still. You can learn from moments of solitude and obscurity and silence. You can spend time with God. You can be drown-proofed, if you will, for God and know that he's going to use you. He's going to use you for his purpose, to fulfill his will for your life. As we close, I just want everyone to take a minute and imagine something with me. Imagine a world where we listen to God, a world where we learn the trust that Jacob learned and Joseph learned. We learn to trust God enough like Paul that we didn't have to fear uncertainty. We didn't have to fear obscurity or solitude or silence. Imagine a world where we are walking with God. We're walking in the spirit. We're overcoming our flesh ourself. And imagine a world where we had the focus of Jesus in a moment when he faced something impossible. Can you imagine the growth that we could have as people, as, as a church? Imagine the faith that we can learn, the humility we can learn. Imagine what we can accomplish if we were simply still.